Please welcome to the show, award-winning author of From the Ashes, Jesse Thistle. All right. <laughs> hey, we made it happen. Yeah, you look familiar. Do I know you from somewhere? Do you live in Ronsonsvale? No. No, I don't. No, I don't know. No. Seem familiar. Maybe got one of those faces, you know? Those faces, yes. This question, it's interesting. I, I had as I was reading your book and then as, as I was doing research and read other people's articles and videos, uh, this question kept on coming up and I'm sure you've been asked but um, I'd like to sort of get your thoughts on it um, because I haven't heard you address it outside of the book so obviously we're happy that you're alive yeah like but I kept on asking throughout the book especially after that fall um, how did you survive like how are you in July? 10th still with us today i don't know that is amazing by the grace of god yeah by the creator or the universe or i don't know i have do no you, idea do you ask do you have you ever asked yourself that question have you ever sort of looked back and go wow oh yeah i have complex ptsd because of all of this stuff oh my goodness okay and so i feel like my life is when i close my eyes it's a never-ending car wreck that mm. I'm stuck in the middle of. Mm -hmm. Even with all my quote-unquote success, this stuff will never sure. leave me. Sure, you know? sure. I heard somebody ask you, I think you were in, I can't remember which province it might, just before the COVID lockdown, you might have been... Labrador. Labrador? Labrador. Yeah. Somebody had asked you whether you still struggle daily uh, in terms of making that choice between do I want to, you know, take a drug or whatever? And you said, yes, every day. Um, every day, every minute. Yeah. And every I read minute. Some, and I also read somewhere that that pain in your, is it your ankle? Yeah. Is that, is that an everyday thing as well? Yeah. Every step I take, it's, it's wow. painful. It's, I still have the hardware in there. I never had the follow-up surgeries that I was supposed to have. And yeah, it's, I've had that stuff in there way too long. And, uh, mm. It's, it hurts because it's not structurally the way it should be. So, mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Is that, is that something you're looking to take care of soon? Or? Well, I, I would, but I'm, a ter I'm terrified of doctors and surgeries mm. and recovery because I went through sure. it the first time and they never took care of me properly. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I don't know. I would rather just have my foot amputated, to tell you the truth, than to try to recover from that again. It's, it's a journey, isn't it? Because a lot of people would think, you know, after you've finished the book, right? And after people finish the book, they think, okay, the book is done. I put the book down. That sort of journey is over. But this is something that you, you sort of, it's, it's an everyday battle. It's an everyday struggle. It's an everyday to overcome and succeed, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I don't see myself as an author or a scholar or... Mm -hmm. I have doubts of my abilities and I'm in a lot of pain and I have a lot of addiction cravings. And so the struggle for me, you know, I guess the symbols of success are a career, a house, a wife, and you know, all that stuff. But for mm -hmm. me, it's just, I'll always be broken and yeah. it doesn't end. It doesn't end. Hmm. I, I read, 
I think it might have been your last. You've got a very cool uh, podcast, by the way, Homies Chatting. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't, I, I've sort of popped in and out of mm-hmm. them. Um, but I know on the last one after you came back from your camping trip, um, you were talking with your co-host. Uh, you and Lucy are trying to become parents. Yeah, we're doing IVF and we got two blastocenes or zygotes or whatever they're called, the fertilized yeah. egg and sperms. And yeah. so they're in a Petri dish, you know, just mossing, waiting for when we're ready for them. So, But we, okay. we're, we were successful and they say implantation rate is like 80% chance of success at this stage. Yeah. So basically have kids, you know, for when we're ready. I can't yeah. wait. Yeah. That is yeah. awesome. It's good to see that smile on your face. Like, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank that you. That is awesome. Tell me about this tradition of making a spoon. Um, Lucy just looked at me and she said, we're going to have a kid and like, you know, uh, we should have a spoon for the child. Do you want to try and make it? And so I just oh, wow. started. And really that's rooted in like our traditional roles as indigenous men to okay. provide and okay. protect, you know, just like, I guess most it's a universal thing, in most cultures. And so part of that was me making that spoon and mm-hmm. making sure that like my baby has something to eat out of that I created. And so that will always be with us. And that's me recapturing my traditional roles and a lot of that was taken away from us as indigenous men Mm -hmm. and so i'm trying to reinstitute that even though it's just it's ad hoc you know no one's teaching me i'm just learning on myself so yeah okay okay interesting um the book how did was that was that a decision that you made to to write it down and to share with the world was it part of your personal therapy to write down and the decision after was to share it? How did that come about? Uh, no, the book, I was asked to write the book. So oh, wow. I, I didn't have a manuscript, um, but I'm a scholar first, right? And so I went through uh, York University and graduated the top student uh, back in 2016. I won the governor general's and two major doctoral awards, the top two in the country, actually. And I did it all in one month. That created like a lot of media attention at that mm-hmm. time. And so the Toronto Star came to do a story about my life. And he was just asking questions about who I was and my background. And he asked me, how did you get into school? You know, you're a little older. And yeah. I told him, well, you know, it's kind of a long story. But it starts when I, I robbed a, uh, robbed a, a 7-Eleven store. And he's like, what? And then I told him my life. And so they put the story out Yeah. and it caught media attention again. It it blew up and a woman from Simon and Schuster contacted me named Adria. And she asked if I would be interested in writing my life story because it talked about like the, the robbery and then me as like the scholar. And so I went and I talked to her and she's, I, she asked me if I had anything written about my life. And I actually did. I was doing my AA steps since okay. rehab. Yeah. Just yeah. going through and trying to make sense of my addiction. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this thing called the fourth step where you write out all the things that you did bad or that hurt other people that made you shameful or that other people did to you. 
so that you can eventually go back and try to make amends and get better. And so I had been writing these all along uh, since I graduated rehab in 2009. Okay. And so I sent those to Adria, my collection of these. And then they called me back a little while later and offered me a major book contract. And that's how the book got made. I wasn't looking to publish and I just was writing these things to try and figure myself out. Sure. I didn't think other people would read because they're for me. They're for me to figure out what happened to me. Right. And so, yeah. Yeah. So, so what's that, what's that, <clears throat> how was that feeling sharing your struggle with, with the world? Was that a, a easy decision to make for you? Well, no, I guess not. But at the time, I was a student and I needed money and like, you yeah. know, I got bills to pay. And sure, sure, yeah. And so there was that. And then there was like beyond that, I'm like, maybe it'll help somebody. You know, mm-hmm. maybe it'll do something to change somebody else's life, give them hope or whatever, you know. And because people had been telling me, man, you're like, you're a walking miracle. You're yeah. lucky to be alive and you're here. And the people that knew me, anyways. And so I put it out with that, knowing that like, it has the impact to change other people's lives. But I really didn't think anybody was going to read my book. I thought it'd come out and then like a month later it'd fade away and I could be a professor, but it just kept growing and growing and growing. And now it's like this thing where it's a phenomenon. So I'm just thankful for it. And Mm. I didn't foresee any of this or I just thought maybe a few people would read it and it would help them. But. Yeah, I guess it's allowed you, like you said, you know, you, you were in Labrador before lockdown. It's, yeah. it's allowed you to have these conversations with, yeah. uh, with, with people and, and, and help people. That must be very gratifying, very satisfying for you. Well, it is in a lot of ways. And a lot of the things that I talk about are actually universal. Yes. Addiction, disconnection, adoption, uh, homelessness. These are things that all of our communities, you know, whatever background you come from, there are issues in all everybody's. And so in me talking about a very specific Métis story, yeah, right? I'm Métis and so is my family and it's very specific. Yeah. The universals in, in it broaden the subject matter so I can go into northern communities in Labrador, talk about the issues in the book, or I could go to like urban Toronto and they're just as relevant to that community. And so... And that was totally unplanned. You know, when you speak your truth, your universals in your truth, they just, they resonate with other people. They can see that in the story, right? And relate it to their own experiences. It's interesting you talk about that your story is a very specific story. It's it's about you. It's about, you know, a a Métis man discovering himself uh, through, through, through his life. Um, But at the same time, it's also general. It can be, other people can relate to it. Um, it's interesting because, uh, you know, for, for the past number of years, we've all, Canada has been having this discussion about, around uh, Indigenous peoples and, and sort of the, the things that have happened to them as a result of uh, Europeans coming to this land. Uh, and not only that, you know, I am, I am Muslim and, you know, there's, we always talk about these groups as if they're one people, one movement. Yeah. You know, over the past month, we, you know, we've been talking about Black Lives Matter, 
um, and how, how blacks all experience everything exactly the same, but it's, it's very different. It for, is. For, for different communities. Um, my question, I guess, is, 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 is your story, you, you, although you talk about it's very specific, is it also, I read somewhere that up to 80% of the homeless people um, are indigenous. Yeah. But it, so is it also a, a larger story as well about in, in, indigenous people? Yeah, it's a story about indigenous homelessness. So my story, the way that my family was dispossessed, our land stolen, we were traumatized. So we had battle trauma from standing up against Canada, as well as the poverty, the trauma of poverty, right? Like mm -hmm. what it's like to go without for a century, basically. Yeah. Generations of my family and then the distrust of police and all that stuff that came with that. That's a very universal indigenous story. Even though it talks very specifically about Métis Road Lounge history, this is something, the mechanisms of it have appeared not only in Canada, but anywhere around the world where colonialism has taken place. And so I get people from Sri Lanka, from Haiti, wow. from Australia, all over the world saying, yo, this is like my story. I know you're a native guy. But wow. this is exactly like my story as a Tamil. We have the same things in my family of like dysfunction, trauma, homelessness. And that's the product of colonialism, the dispossession of that. So oh. <clears throat> I'm not trying to homogenize. No, that's just what people rel relate to. Like this, Getting back to like the first part of what you were saying there, the experience I find of indigeneity or blackness or even like, you know, the Muslim uh, we are homogenized into one and what that does is it gets rid of the nuance of class right there are rich there are rich muslims there of are course. poor muslims yes there yes. are rich native people there are poor native people not all native people mm -hmm. go through the type of poverty that i my family went through mm -hmm. and so that's a really important discussion to have because i don't see that a lot in any of the discussions that are happening right now and it, so you know, it's more, I think it's a, it's a mixture of class and race together. That's what's causing a lot of these social issues because there are people that are benefiting that are richer, that are similarly from different racial backgrounds. Yeah, you know? of course. I, I was, I was speaking, uh, wow, maybe it was a month and a half, two months ago with uh, Tanya Talaga. Mm. Um, you know, and she was talking about, she's from, uh, an area I think just north of Thunder Bay yeah. um, and she but she lives currently you know in, in the city and she talks about there's different experiences living in the city versus you know living up in, in, oh, yeah. in Thunder, Bay, Thunder Bay area it's not we don't all experience the same things all the time yeah and that's part of the trick of I guess um, this kind of discussion is that we lose that nuance, right? We lose that nuance. Yeah, urban existence is completely different than a rural, you know, reservation life. Mm -hmm. You know, some people, I know a few really, really rich native urban people that have been like that for generations. But wow. this, that doesn't catch media attention the same way as, you know, the trauma story. Yeah. And so, yeah. Huh. Interesting. I... You talk about road allowance in the book. 
Um, I had no clue. It's sort of, you know, you read it, it was a thing, okay, and you, and you finish. It was only, you know, yesterday um, or the day before as, as I was sort of doing more research preparing for this. I said, I, I, what does this road allowance mean? And I was shocked. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping you could take a couple of minutes. First of all, for those who don't know, um, who are the Métis and, and what is road allowance? And specifically that, that sort of relationship. Okay, so we'll start with the first one. It's a huge question. Who are the Métis? Mm. So Métis itself is a political peoplehood. It's a, a nationhood. Um, much the same way that can Canadians are Canadian by virtue of being part of the nation. It's not a racial designation. So okay. to be Métis, mm -hmm. really what it's about is over the 19th century into the 20th century, we've asserted ourselves against authority. Uh, first Canada, then against, I mean, first the Hudson's Bay, then Canada, then like, like in court now, that's what we do. And we know ourselves as a collective people that assert our will as Métis people in struggle. And so that's how we know ourselves as Métis. Our progenitor ancestors are First Nations mothers and European trader fathers. And in that union, those two people got together and they had a mixed blood uh, offspring. And then another mate, uh, couple like that, First Nations mom and European father, married and had, say, a daughter that was mixed blood. So you have a mixed blooded son, mixed blooded daughter. They in turn marry and they have fully mixed blooded children. And so three generations like that produced um, people that were different from their progenitor grandmothers and progenitor grandfathers. They, they formed what's called an ethnogenesis. So they started to form their own culture, their own understanding of themselves as separate from their ancestors. And they started to assert themselves, defend themselves, as a nation, they started way back in 1816, flew their flag. So this is like 70 okay. years before Canada was formed. There was a Métis flag and we knew ourselves as a nation. And all throughout the 19th century, we kept reasserting our, our peoplehood. And that is what Métis actually means. There's a confusion oh. out there that Métis means mixed bloodedness. It doesn't, it doesn't maybe ancestrally, there was a time where there was proto-Métis that were mixed-blooded, but over time it, it grew into like this nationhood. So oh. what, what, that's what the Métis are. So the second half of your question is like, what are the road allowances? So <clears throat> in the 18, I mean, 1870, uh, the government purchased what's called Rupert's Land from the Hudson's Bay Company. This is a huge swath of land in Western and Northern Canada basically everything that drains into Hudson's Bay that was owned by the Hudson's Bay for 200 years wow. since 1670. And it wasn't profitable anymore. Uh, and so London, that's where Hudson's Bay was uh, situated. Say, we want to get rid of this territory. It's costing us too much. Let's offset this cost to can the dominion of Canada, which was brand new in 1876 or uh, 67, sorry, mm -hmm. is when it formed. So three years later, they, they offered it to Canada to buy in. So Canada purchased it. And, um, but what they did is they didn't ask anybody 
who was indigenous who actually lived there if they wanted to be sold to Canada. So the Métis, the Métis were like, no way, this is our homeland. Mm-hmm. We're going to stand up and fight. And so they did. And they won the first struggle, mm-hmm. uh, the Red River resistance that we all learn about in grade 10 history. And then uh, they were supposed to create the province of Manitoba as a homeland for Métis people to protect our language, our culture, and our nationhood. And they didn't do that. They flooded it with white Anglo-Protestant settlers. And that pushed us west to Saskatchewan. And we, again, were getting crowded out by the nation state. So we rose up during the Northwest resistance. But this time we lost. We lost horribly and Canada crushed us. Mm -hmm. And to kind of deal with the the Métis problem, uh, they treated with us individually. So they, they got rid of our land on an individual basis through the script process, which is different than the way that they extinguish Aboriginal title to land for First Nations people. They did that collectively with people. That's why there's reserves and nations today. Okay, uh, they did like family by family. That's how they did the Métis. And they did that to break us up, to break up our political will so that we couldn't resist. Because yeah. we had twice gone to war and we lo- they lost the first time and... You know, we lost the second time. And so this process continued for like 20 years. And the Métis eventually lost all their land and had nowhere to be. We phenotypically looked like we were First Nations. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't access settler society because it was hella racist back in the day, you know, all throughout the 20th century. And so the Métis came to live on the sides of the roads in crown land, public land that nobody wanted or owned. And that's where we built our communities called road allowances. And we erected like small tents at first and built shacks. And it was their squatter encampments basically is what they were. And we lived like that from 1885 all the way up until my generation. You know, 100 years later in the poverty, we didn't even have access to healthcare. We had no access to education. Um, We're known as the forgotten people in Canadian history and living conditions are known to be way worse than what they were on reserve or even in residential schools. And nobody knows about this history because it's been erased because we were the losers of the war. And so everybody knows about the Métis people with Riel and what happened and then nothing. We don't learn anything more about these people. It's almost like they disappear. And so the, what happened is we became marginalized on the sides of the roads as road allowance people. And I've been studying this area for a while, and there are similarities to the way that the nation states of Europe formed and pushed uh, Roma or gypsy people to the edges of train tracks, to the edges of roadways. So it's, it's in the operation of the way that the state was made that pushed us basically off our land, stole of all of our resources and made us uh, squatters in our own land. And that's who the Métis are and what road allowances are. Wow, and you're, you said you've been, you've been studying this. Are you um, trying to shine light on, on this darkness in terms of yes. are you, so, so that more people are aware? Well, that's part of it. I want the general public to be aware of it, but more what I want is like for Métis people to understand the chaos of their world. So for me, I didn't understand why I went into adoption and why my family fell apart and why we never had anything. 
it's but it's a direct result of this long traumatic history on the road allowance yeah. and so there's a whole there's thousands and thousands of metis people like me that were just totally discombobulated disconnected from their kin in the land and end up in urban centers in the 80s and 70s and 90s and so really my research is about reconstructing those home communities that people were lost from and so that they can orient themselves and know themselves as a people so we can come together again as a nation. That's why I'm doing the history of uh, the road allowance where I'm from. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Um, as you know, when, when I, when I started reading your book, obviously, you know, on the cover, it says my story of being Métis homeless and finding my way. And um, for me, at least, you know, when, when you went, when you finally ended up at your grandparents' place in Brampton, uh, I'm thinking in my head, uh, he's found, a, as a reader, he's found a home, right? I almost forgot on the, on the front cover about homeless. And I don't know whether I, I sort of, oh, that, that time sort of when you and your brothers, how old were you, three, four, and five, when your dad used to leave for a couple of days at a time? Yeah, and yeah. Really young. And I thought, I thought in my head, okay, maybe that's what he meant by homeless. So you're at your grandparents' home. Um, for me, as, as the reader, I thought, okay, this is the beginning of you becoming whole, as whole as one can be. Um, even though I don't know how far, probably not even halfway through the book. And I didn't realize, oh, there's so much more to go. Um, Help me understand, I, I guess for you, it, it, for me, the reader, you were home, but for you, it, it, you, you weren't home. No. T tell me about that. Help me understand that. Okay, so uh, it all de it depends on how you understand homelessness itself mm. and what home is. Yeah. So home and homelessness for Indigenous people I argue in my, uh, my scholarship, because I'm also I'm a homeless scholar, is really about a disconnection from land, from kinship, from culture, from our worldview, mm -hmm. right? We, I now have a Judeo-Christian worldview. That's not the worldview of my ancestors, right? This is this society's worldview. And so all these disconnections happened over time. Uh, when I was taken out of my kin group, when I was a young boy, I'm, you notice in the first opening chapter, I'm with my cookum and she's teaching me how to be a good relation, how to treat yes. the berries, how to like respect the animals because yes. there are relations too. Yeah. And I have a real strong connection to the land and that all of a sudden ends. That ends really abruptly. And so I, I'm disconnected from my mom and my dad, disconnected mm -hmm. from my language, from my, what we call Wakuduin, understanding ourselves as relations within nature that we have to respect everything. All these things were gone. And this goes back to my scholarship with the definition of indigenous homelessness. And if you read my book, you should really go and read that definition because my book actually showcases all the different dimensions of indigenous homelessness all the way through. Okay. And it shows that's what I'm talking about when I talk about homelessness. And to give you a point of reference, when I've spoken with like people that are residential school survivors that are homeless in their adult years, 
And I asked them, when did you become homeless? You know, what is homelessness to you? Uh Most times out of, they would describe it as like a disconnection or a loss of healthy relationships. So from their families, from their language and all that stuff. And they they don't say the first time they became homelessness uh, was when they lost their housing when they were 18 or 19. They describe their homelessness starting when they were taken out of their family unit when they were three or four or five years old. And so that's what the book is about. It's about me trying to find love and connection the whole way through because I was essentially made homeless by my father's decision years earlier. And it's kind of weird because my route off the streets was through robbing a store and my father, what I didn't put in the book is he got caught for a robbery right after he left us. So he, he made us homeless basically by this robbery. And then I got off the streets by doing that same, that same act like a generation later. So, but it's all about it. That's what I mean when I talk about homelessness. Interesting. Yeah. We, we think about, I got a roof over my head. I got somewhere to, to sleep that I don't have to line up for, you know, as, as as a home. I, I, I didn't, it's interesting the way you, you talk about the worldview, right? It's yeah. interesting, you know, what, what is the definition of, of, a, of home? It will be different from, for so many different types of people. Yeah, and I've, I met homeless people like without a house that were living outside who were like punks and stuff. And they say, I'm not homeless, I'm houseless. But my home is here with my street family. This is my dog. This is my girlfriend. This is my like mom. I know all these people and we support and love each other. And cause really, if you think about it through that lens, it's about relationship and like meaning of space, you know, even public space to them is their home. And so I had to really think deeper about homelessness and what is home and like the, what kept coming up when I was writing about a lot of stuff was my friend Abdi from Somalia who would really describe, you know, the way he left his homeland and like he mm-hmm. would always reminisce about the way it was in Kenya and Somalia and all that stuff. And so for me, I realized that this man became homeless in that civil war when he was pushed out of his home, his land. Yeah. And then I started relating it to like, is this similar to the native experience of being pushed off our land yeah. or being aliens in this strange land that doesn't seem to want us? And so I saw like this, like parallel understanding of what home and homelessness is. And that's the way I look at it now. Yeah. And I, it's, it's starting to in impact the sector and people are saying that's actually more accurate description of it than just having, not having a structure of habitation to live in. Yeah. You're, you're doing some work. I read you're, you're doing some work specifically around this, around indigenous homelessness with, um, so with the CMA? COH. COH. I'm sorry. I don't know why I wrote CMA. Um, with the COH, tell, tell me about what you're learning and, and what, um, I guess, if, if there, are there any action steps that, that can be taken? I don't know whether it's from a government perspective or from a citizen perspective on what steps we can take to rectify the situation 
Well, I, uh, I worked at the, I don't work at the COH anymore, the Canadian Observatory at Homelessness. Okay. Of homelessness. I don't work there. I, I worked there from 2012 to 2017. Okay. And in so that time period, I wrote, I wrote the definition of Indigenous homelessness in Canada. Okay. In consultation with scholars, people with lived experience, community members who have dealt with homelessness who are Indigenous. And so I put that definition out in response to the Canadian definition of homelessness, which talked about homelessness as being a range of houselessness. Mm. I said, this doesn't represent what I went through or what I know. And so let me try to like have a crack at this indigenous definition. So I wrote it and it came out and it's gone on to change mm. the way that the country understands and looks at the issue of indigenous homelessness, as well as uh, other homelessness uh, like veterans and elders homelessness as being a disconnection from healthy relationships. But what's unique about indigenous homelessness is the drivers. The, what, what were the colonial interruptions that created a disconnection from land, a disconnection from our worldview, a disconnection from our culture, our languages, our domiciles, so the way that we lived. And that's the work that I did there. And it's gone on to like really inform policy uh, it's, you know, help to craft different uh, cities' approaches to homelessness, like Ottawa, I know, has done something with it. I think London as well. And it's gone on to guide. Now it's steering the way that funding and programming are being built to fix and rectify some of these dimensions of Indigenous homelessness. And that's a really positive, hopeful thing. Oh, good, good. The government was supposed to adopt the definition. Uh, it was recommended. There was like a, a commission that went all across Canada through the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. Uh, it's a big organization that I'm exec an executive on. Mm -hmm. And they were going around asking, what should the government do to kind of like end homelessness apart from housing first? And their second recommendation was to adopt the definition of Indigenous homelessness and the Trudeau government was going to adopt it in June uh, 2018. But then there was like a shift to the right in the politics of the country. I think that's when Doug Ford won Ontario. Mm. And then everybody got cold feet and kind of abandoned it. So my recommendation to people, citizens of Canada, would be to put pressure on, uh, you know, the NDP, the Conservatives or the Liberal government if they don't have a comprehensive housing strategy that involves some sort of use of the definition of indigenous homelessness, I would argue that it's not going to be effective and that we should, you should vote for someone that does because uh, the people that I got the information from, the, the community agencies, they already know the issue and they're on the ground. They just don't have the funding because yeah. the government's not giving them the funding. And yeah. so... That's what I think the, the most effective strategy would be is to vote for someone that has a good housing platform. Awesome. I have a question <clears throat> from a listener. Uh, let me just find it. It's on Facebook here. I believe you have worked or you used to, you might know this person's wife. So it comes from the husband of Karen Dancy. Does Karen Dancy ring a bell? Yes. Yes. From York She's University. Yeah, she's the grad uh, coordinator in the history department at York. Yeah, yeah, so her husband, Michael, 
uh, found out that I was uh, sitting down with you. And he was, actually, he's listening to your audiobook. He loves it. And he's wondering if you've ever thought about uh, creating a script similar to Hamilton, but specifically about Louis Riel and the Métis. No, but I think it, it's time I've been asked. There was a guy really? that came around, I forget what his name was. He had he won two Governor General Awards for literature and he wanted to write a play about okay. Louis Riel and John A. MacDonald. Oh. And I got cold feet. I was just too busy with my doctoral work to do it. Sure. But like the opportunities there and now is the time. I think now is yeah. Now is the time. And there has been French versions of this. Like I, I seen one about Gabriel Dumont three years ago in Quebec. Okay. They really love the Métis. There's like a camaraderie oh. against British imperialism. They ah. see Métis as similar to their struggle, and we were sure. French speaking and stuff. Yeah. So, but no, I haven't sat down and to do it. But I should. I should. It's a lot of money there, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> You're soon. You'll have more than two mouths to feed, right? So you got. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I need to figure something out. <laughs> you have to. You have to. You have to figure that out for sure. Um, you you had posted a photo on social. Um, there's there's a person in your book who is a friend's father, I believe, who was a policeman. Yes. And you had recently reconnected with this person in Brampton, I think, and you posted a photo. Yes. Yeah. Um, now tell me about that reconnection. Tell me about that meeting. What was that like? was crazy it's a long story so i'll start from the sure so in my book i have a story about robin's eggs there's this guy brian yes, i steal the robin's eggs and i was a nasty little kid but i did it because i i was jealous of the eggs because they had their mother and me and my brother didn't and so mr t is his father is brian's father um uh, this i was in ottawa right before covid closed and I was at the National Arts Gallery giving a talk. And I told the story of the Robin's eggs. And I told the story of Mr. T, his mm -hmm. father. Yeah. Not knowing in the crowd was, was Brian. He wow. stood up at the end of the, the talk and he's like, I, I'm Brian from the, his name's Ryan Turnbull. He's an MP in Ottawa now. And uh, he stood up, he said, I'm wow. Brian and, and I'm, I'm here to tell you like, I, Jesse, it's okay that you stole the eggs. And I'm like, dude, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. And wow. we, we reconnected there. And he said, I don't know if you know this, but now I'm on the housing portfolio with Adam Vaughn for the Liberal government. He's an MP for Whitby. And you should come and see um, my dad because he talks about you a lot. And like, it's good to reconnect and whatever. And so we started talking and he sent me a photo of him and his dad. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I, sh I got to go down there. You know, it's only like, you know, it's, I'm in Hamilton. Brampton's just down the road. I should go and, you know, so I drove down with Lucy and Mr. T was outside of his house packing his truck to go to Wasaga or wherever he goes. And uh, we just started talking and he's, he's like, yeah, Jesse, I'm just so glad to hear you're good. You're doing good because you went down the wrong path and you were a pretty bad kid. And like, I knew you were good inside, but you're just doing a lot of this like bad stuff. And I'm glad. And he, I'm like, you know, I told him, I thanked him. I was like, that advice you gave me about choice that you and Brian gave me about choice 
really helped save my life. And it, you know, it didn't happen until much years later where I gained my own wisdom that I saw that I had choice, what you're saying, but thank you. And we hugged and then we took a picture and then, and then I posted it online. Oh my God. Just you telling that story. Yeah. Yeah. That's wow. Wow. And he was one of the only adult adults that cared really that way for me. That like took the time to try and straight me out and whatever. So, yeah. I, I want to understand, you know, as a reader, when, I, when I'm reading your book, um, you know, my, my heart got pulled when you were taken from your mom. Um, and then the, the few times as a child when you meet her, obviously as a child, you're sort of confused who's this other kid that comes along with her. And, mm. you know, um, and, and I can feel that. And I can feel the longing for, for mom, especially that part where was it your grandmother or your grandfather finds you with the Sears photos? Yeah. Out? Yeah. That like, I thought I it was going somewhere else. And when you talked about, they look like my mom, I just, I was floored. Yeah. Um, but I didn't, I, 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 I could, I didn't understand sort of this longing you had for your dad. Right, because for me, it was like he was abandoned by his dad. Like his right. dad would would he kept like three babies at home for days at a time to leave and come back. But there was there there seemed to be that longing for you for your father, wasn't there? Yeah, I, I still do. I hope I find him and I can beat him up. That's my oh. dream. Okay. I hope one day to find him so that I can have a fight and beat him up. And then I can give him a big hug and we can forgive. But yeah. I have to give him a good punch in the head, you know, I think. And I also realize now that I've had my addiction issues and whatever, and I understand the power of uh, mm. drugs and I understand his motivations now. I really do. Mm. And uh, I know that they're bigger and stronger. Like these demons, whatever they are, alcohol, spirits, uh, drugs they're thousands of years old and they're much more powerful than just a mortal human being right and so my dad was taken by these forces and I understood that even yeah. as a kid you know wow. now I fully understand because I've been an addict and I still am an addict now and so yeah I always long for him but there's always that undertone of you know I want to get even with them too so yeah there um I never knew so I consider myself straight edge every once in a blue moon, I might take a, a smoke or something, but you know, I, I'm not a drinker or anything, but there was a time uh, back when Canada won the gold medal in hockey for the first time in what seemed like forever where I had liver surgery um, and the liver surgery, they, you know, I had never drank it. So it wasn't because of alcohol or anything, but a fluke of nature, let's call it. Yeah. Um, had to have liver surgery. And part of that recovery was I was on an IV drip of morphine. Right. And I remember, you know, there was a button you would click to yeah. get the morphine drip and then it would lock for, you know, you couldn't click it again for a certain amount of period. And because of the pain, whenever I could click, I'd click. And I think it might've been a day or two days later, they took it away. And I had asked, why are you taking it away? Like this helps. And he goes, no, if we keep it for, if you keep it for too long, you'll actually become addicted to it. 
Um, so we're taking it away. And I never thought anything of it until I read your book. Because you talk about, you might have been in, um, in isolation in jail. Yeah. But you're, I believe you were in jail and you, you, you describe this feeling in your body that you were getting. And as soon as I read that, I, in my head, I said, holy shit. This is what I felt after they took the morphine away. I, yeah. never, I never connected. I would get, I could feel it coming. It was really weird, Jesse. I would feel it coming. And what it would happen is that it would be like, a, uh, like an ice pick. It felt like yeah. an ice pick. Is that how I would describe it? Of a train coming to me. I could feel it coming. I couldn't stop it. And it would be like I'd be stabbed with an ice pick. And it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't cold, it wasn't pain, it was like a mixture of yeah. all of this running through my body. And I would click on the help button at the hospital and I would just ask, just somebody needs to hold me, I just need to be held. I'm being, I felt like I was being jabbed. Yeah. And I never knew what it was. I just thought it was as, you know, a result of healing, my body healing from the surgery. But when I read mm. you going through withdrawal, I said, that's exactly how I felt and I never yeah. knew what addiction was. Yeah. Like I never knew how to relate to it. Right. Sure. Until I read your book. And now, now I have this word that I, th I think I'm learning more about it ever since we went into lockdown called empathy. Mm. Right. We don't know, you know, those of us like myself who've been fortunate enough to always have a home. Right. Don't know. can't understand why some people in my perspective choose to be homeless or choose to follow the bottle or a needle or something like that until I read your book. And I thought, yes, sometimes it's a choice, but sometimes it's, sometimes it's not as easy as choosing. You know what I'm saying? Right. Does that make sense? It's almost like there's larger forces at play Yeah. of pain and trauma dispossession, disconnection from kin, all those things that push someone into making that choice. Yeah. Right. Ultimately yeah. you're right. It is a choice. Right. Mm -hmm. But like, if you look at the macro factors at play around somebody that are pushing them into that direction to make that choice, you realize that they're not really making a choice. Yeah. They're just choosing the best thing given the array of, social problems, trauma, all the things around them. Yeah. And so through that lens, you could argue that homelessness, addiction, all these things are structural. There's, there are problems of society. They're not really individual choices or because someone has a failed morality or will, you know, they're just making the logical choice given the circumstances around them. And like, if you look at my life, that's why I laid it out the way I did, because you can see clearly my cho choice to use and get involved with drugs was really an, a reaction to early childhood trauma. You know, there's an, a specific word, I think it's called ACE. Um, ACE. Or yeah, early childhood um, something, something. I, I don't know yeah. what it is. But the end product of, of it is like, mental health issues, complex PTSD. And then what happens is people self-medicate mm. with drugs and then they become addicted and then it just cycles out of control at cycle, that point. Yeah. 
but really what I needed was counseling as a child and not to be, you know, beaten by my grandfather and forced to work. That didn't help me, you know, even though that was how he loved me. He was yeah. a disciplinarian. He didn't know anything better. Yeah, yeah. But like ultimately I needed a counselor when I was in grade school to help me through all this stuff. So yeah. your, uh, you and your brothers were so tight uh, yeah. growing up and, and, you know, as you go in your book, you sort of drifted apart and there was that yeah. one brother, I apologize for not remembering your names, um, who kept on finding you in the different places yeah, that you would end up, Jerry? Yeah. How how is your relationship with your brothers today? Uh, Josh and me get along really well. He loves the book, and he's behind me one hundred percent. And he became an RCMP, and then he got uh, his own unique kind of um, trauma from that, and he retired. Mm-hmm. He's okay. finished. He's yeah. got a daughter, and they're doing well. They're out in Vancouver. My other brother, Jerry, is going through his own stuff now because, yeah. like, the years caught up with him. And there's a little bit of sibling rivalry between me and him. And so he doesn't see the big fuss. Like, I was always the homeless addict on the street. And I stole, I lied, I hurt a lot of his family and a lot of the people that were around him. And so mm-hmm. he's really resentful of me right now. So, But we'll get back together. We've gone through periods of this in our relationship. Sure. And we just, we're, we're on a on a timeout for a while so yeah. yeah there's um this this book floored me like huge um our book club at work I, I i read it for the book club as well and i and i told everybody about it yesterday and i said you guys you need to read this book it's 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 phenomenal um i want to slowly uh, close off jesse thanks again for your time i really do uh, appreciate it. Um, tell me about meeting Lucy. Meeting Lucy, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she was the girl from grade school. I was the little nerdy kid. Was that the one she was on the hill? Yeah, she was on the hill with the popular kids, right? <laughs> and like, I was, we were lower middle class, I guess, so we didn't have the nicest clothes, and she was a different level. Sure. And I, went, I, yeah, I introduced myself to her and I fell in love, right? But she didn't know who I was. Like, and I went to different, I went to the bad high school. She went to the good one. And then we didn't talk until the day that I fell off the building and she was at the party because she was my brother's friend. Okay. And uh, she's beautiful. She had this like tight sweater on. She was sexy. And I tried to like pick her up, even though I, I had my own girlfriend and stuff. And she had a boyfriend. So. Like I was totally out of line. I fell off the building and then I went through my like trials and tribulations on the streets. Yeah. And then as it was like finishing off my rehab, my grandmother died. And the day that my grandma died, she contacted me via Facebook to give me like condolences and like to make sure that I wasn't going to like relapse. Wow. She'd heard from my brother and his friends that I was trying to like get better. And we just started talking after that. And she, to me, like, you got to remember, I'm like off the streets. I'm a like former, you know, addict. And to have this girl in university that had her own place, that was getting her education, that knew what she wanted in life. To me, it was like, I won the lottery, you know, like, Mm. and I remember really trying to impress her when we first started talking, I'd like get showered. 
I'd like put on my nice leather jacket, my, my hat. I even had clean underwear, everything perfect, you know. And then behind me, I put my wall of shampoo so that she could see that I was clean like her. Mm. Was trying to impress her. Yeah. She knew. She knew that, right, while we were talking. And I think that really won her over to, to show her how much she meant. I just, in the way that I was doing it. And she acted as like a transition out of the life for me. So yeah. as I was coming out of rehab, she let me come move in with with her and I guess they would call her a peer mentor. She retrained me how to do all the things in life that I needed to know how to do because I didn't just didn't know how to do anything. Didn't know how to pay rent, buy groceries, take care of my clothes. I just learned that recently in rehab. And so she walked me through all that. She taught me how to drive and like she's my everything, you know, she wow. really is. And I was like, I got to marry this woman <laughs> before she gets away, before she realizes that I'm not, you know, <laughs> as good as she thinks I am. And so we married and we've been married now eight years. And wow, I don't know, we're a good team. We, we get along well. And she's actually cool. You know, like when you like somebody, <laughs> yeah. like I know people that get married and they don't end up liking each other because they don't think they're cool. I think she's cool and she thinks I'm cool. So we get along, right? Yeah. That is awesome. Jesse, um, thank you so much. I really, really do appreciate it. I know you're very busy. I know you've got a lot of demands on your time. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, man. It's been awesome. Thank you. And I, uh, I look forward to talking in my next book. Hopefully you can have me on again. I would love to. I would love to if ever this becomes a play as well. Um, if ever we get out of this. Um, and I come up for a hike near Hamilton, um, yeah. I, I will reach out. It would be an honor to, uh, to spend time face-to-face -face with you. Before, before we do leave, tell everybody um, your website, where they can buy the book, where they can keep following you. Okay. As per prompt uh, from Kareem, I'm going to tell you about my wonderful homies chatting on Facebook. And on uh, Periscope, uh, 7 p.m. Friday nights, Eastern, uh, we have uh, guests such as Strombo, uh, Biff Naked. Uh, we had the cast of North of 60. So we got some pretty pretty big people on there. So come check us out. And we just, we just talk and like we're around the kitchen table. Yeah. Beyond that, you can visit my author page at uh, Jesse Thistle. Uh, on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at Man. So that's M-I-C-H-I-F man. And uh, you can watch me just post crazy stuff online because I really don't care. And I've been through enough to deal with how people think <laughs> of me. So just come and check it out. Thank you, Jesse. We'll talk soon. Yes, thank you. Talk soon. Bye. Bye-bye.